The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Also great to welcome my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a great discussion ahead. Phil will kick us off. Great. Thanks, John. So I thought this week we'd uh, take a, a page from the headlines, except for the fact that it was written in May of 1977. I just went back uh, last week, actually, and reread Warren Buffett's famous essay from Fortune Magazine in May of 1977, titled How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. And as with all things that Buffett's written over the years, it's an incredible teaching document. It's incredibly well explained. It's clear. It's lucid. And anyone who reads it is going to come away with you know, either one of two reactions. And it's either going to be well, yeah, that's all correct and that's all obvious, but, and then they're going to come up with some sort of weird justification to jam their own worldview into it, or they're going to come away with the same you know, general reaction, but then not know how to apply it into the real world. So that's what we'll try to do today, looking back at the framework that that he put forth all those years ago. And it's, it's stunning. I'll, I'll walk through the numbers as to just how absolutely dead-on accurate he was you know, it, it's extremely rare, obviously, for him to put any sort of number behind a forecast because he, of, of all people, knows just how hard it is to be accurate in making any sort of forecast. And, and he doesn't just throw this around willy-nilly. So when he does, it's obviously well worth listening to. And it would be fascinating if he would update this for today, although I doubt he will. And, and conditions have obviously changed. But anyway, he he starts out by noting that the central problem then, again, in May of 1977, is that the return on capital, his proxy for that being the return on equity, hasn't risen with inflation. It seems to be stuck at 12%. And he goes through, and sure enough, using the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it kind of bounced around for 20, 30 years leading into that period between 10, 12% in, in a couple of individual years. As recently as 1974, it got all the way up to 14.1%. In 1970, it was down at nine and a half percent, but it really was quite consistent at 12 percent. And you know what's really interesting, and this is a bit of a digression, but it, it's important, is that as we look now, and I took a broader subset of, of companies, the S&P 500, um, that that return has gone up over the years, right? As we all know, and it's mostly gone up in the years, you know, starting in the 90s and the 2000s, and that's coincident, of course, with the shift away from capital intensive heavy real assets towards intangibles, although there are big sectors of the economy, notably energy and utilities, uh, financials, uh, surprisingly healthcare, that all are still 
stuck at a relatively low return on equity. But then you have some very capital light sectors. Telecom, by the way, is also kind of surprisingly low in that regard. But then you have some sectors that are just enormously important and some big giant you know, massively powerful companies like Google Alphabet that are, you know, dragging the average up to the high side. You know, the entire IT sector is generally going to be above a 20% ROE if the business is at all healthy. And so that's that's taken the the S&P 500 return on equity up quite a bit, but not up as much as I would have thought. Uh, you know, just kind of ignoring 2020 because it was such a weird year. It was actually kind of low to mid-teens in 2018 and 2019, we did get this massive sugar high in 2021 where it was well above 20%, but there's really not much of a case to be made. It was 18% in, in 2017 or thereabouts. So, you know, again, it's it's going to bounce around for sure. And we could have a long, fascinating conversation about the vagaries of, of accounting and whether we should use reported or operating or whatever. But, there, you know, if we take the 12% number, which is, you know, well substantiated from back in the day and add, you know, maybe three points to that, maybe four at the most, that that's about as much as you can really justify that. It's not like the entire universe of large publicly traded companies in America are producing a 20 or a 25% ROE consistently, right? And we'll go through ways that that could change in the future, but let's take as a baseline, you know, something around 15, 16%, which, which seems pretty reasonable. Um, and then, you know, the other big variable to, to Buffett's calculation is the fact that, you know, he, he assumed as a proxy that, that stocks were trading around book value. And sure enough, that was a decent, uh, approximation at the time because the Dow Jones, as of his writing, was trading at about 110%, 1.1 times book value. Um, and again, he would be the first to admit that book value is not an all-powerful metric. It's become increasingly less relevant in the years since then. And indeed, you know, we have sucked trillions of dollars of equity capital out of these companies, and for good reason. You know, they, they require less capital. Uh, the capital that's available is generally available on more efficient terms. Uh, companies have gotten smarter about using various alternative forms of financing, such as their own working capital and vendors, uh, creative debt financing structures that don't usually risk blowing up the company. But And so you would expect a massive increase in the book value multiple paid. Uh, and that's exactly what you've seen. But what's really interesting is, is, again, it didn't go up by as much as you would think until just recently. Um, it bottomed out well below 2% well after the financial crisis had passed. So it was well under 2% in September of 2011. And it it really didn't go up that much. It kind of bounced around, you know, two, two and a half, three, maybe three and a half for pretty much all of the last decade. You know, certainly from 2013 to 2020, you'd draw a trend line around plus or minus three, three and a quarter turns in terms of price to book value. And then all of a sudden it went above 4X since September, 2020. And has kind of stayed there, and you know that's that's really interesting. Um, but anyway, so the, the point of this was that you know, look, that that's going to set part of the return that you earn as an equity investor, whether your proxy is is true value or book value or whatever. The higher price you pay, the lower return you're going to get in the future as an equity investor. But anyway, going back to the, the historical construct of this, Buffett cites the triple dip of 1946 to 1966 in which the return on equity was much higher than interest rates. Again, back then, prevailing interest rates were in the low to mid single digits. The investment rate available, so what the companies were earning, so let's say 12%, was 
was very attractive and very attractive relative to any other alternative in the reinvestment rate. This should all sound quite familiar. So you probably get where I'm going with this. And as those two factors took hold, the higher multiples and valuations became manifest in the marketplace and created kind of a feedback loop, a little bit of reflexivity. And then guess what happened? As inflation set in and rates started to go up in the late 1960s, and no coincidence when Buffett started to you know, have doubts about valuation and, and indeed shut down his partnership, the triple dip went into reverse. And we had a dead flat equities market from the late 1960s, roughly 1968, all the way through 1982. And that coincides exactly with the interest rate cycle. Interest rates peaked, I think it was 1981, and, and the equity market fully bottomed out in 1982. And so look, there were lots of up and downs, and there was opportunities to do you know, presumably somewhat better than the market if you traded those ups and downs perfectly. And there was some dividend yield along the way, but the absolute value of the equity market really went nowhere for those 14 years, which is pretty sobering. So if you look at ways to analyze this and get around it, Buffett cites there, you know, if you want to have a higher level of return on capital, return on equity, and, and earnings need to go up to offset this higher level in, of inflation. There's only five ways to improve earnings. Number one would be an increase in turnover, the, the, the sales rate, you know, operating leverage on a fixed base. Two would be cheaper leverage, cheaper debt. Three would be more leverage. Four would be lower taxes. And five would be higher margins, higher operating margins. And he goes through why he thinks there's some room for improvement in a couple of those categories, but on the whole, that any gains are going to be very modest at best. Uh, in particular, you know, look, there's some tailwinds to be had from an inflationary environment as it pertains to turnover, uh, particularly on an accounting basis. Uh, as you know, the the new dollar sales come in at, at the at the higher price level, but it's not going to provide much ballast over a period of years if if inflation is indeed sustained over that period of time. I think we can all agree that cheaper leverage is unlikely in this type of environment. You know, why would spreads shrink or why would interest rates go down? It seems very unlikely. More leverage is, of course, always tempting. And the good news is right now, uh, at least compared to certain periods in history, there's relatively less corporate balance sheet leverage than there has been at other times. But is there likely to be a massive relevering of corporate balance sheets to juice the return on equity? That seems unlikely. Lower taxes, uh, again, always possible, but relative to history, they're already pretty low. It seems unlikely that they're going to go lower, particularly as working age populations shrink and we have a massive bloat of retirees to, to pay for and finance. And then operating margins. Um, you know, you tell me, this is where I want you guys to chime in on all this stuff, but labor, energy, raw materials, supply chain stuff writ large. We've talked about this a lot in the last couple of years. If we enter a phase of sustained dis or deglobalization, what's going to make operating operating margins have made huge improvements over the last 10, 20, 30 years. And it's one of the great success stories in corporate America and in the world writ large. And that is almost entirely, I would guess, I've not done a composition analysis to see, but the return on equity that we have seen of say three points over the last 40 or 50 years, I would guess is almost all due to operating margin improvements along with some minor contributions from those other factors. Um, and, and what's going to drive higher operating margins from here? God willing, it will be sustained honest progress from, from corporate managements that are able to drive operating margins higher, but it does seem awfully likely that they're going to be facing significant headwinds on 
labor, raw materials, energy, all these good old fashioned things that matter to any company under the sun. I don't care how capital light you are, you still have input costs, whether it's people or energy or anything else, and it, it's all going to matter. Um, so the last thing that he then ties this all together with is the three factors that are going to drive investors' future returns. And those are the purchase price, in this case, purchase price relative to book value or some other anchor, taxes and inflation. And so he walks through how a 12% return on equity at book value is very likely to be only 7% after taxes and after frictional costs using an, assum- an assumed payout ratio uh, that was typical at the time, still reasonably typical today, actually. And so 7% after taxes and costs and before inflation with 7% inflation is exactly zero in real terms. And uh, sure enough, that's exactly what happened, by the way. He said, it seems uh, quite possible to me that inflation rates will average 7% in future years, close quote. And that was dead on accurate, like shockingly accurate, as accurate as any number could have been at the time, which is which is pretty stunning. Um, he also then goes on to, to cite the example of over the next 10 years, we could double the value of the Dow Jones Industrial Average with just our existing 12% equity coupon, a 40% dividend payout, and a steady 1.1 times 110% valuation of book value. But at 7% inflation, investors would have lost real purchasing power if they bought at 900, which is the value of the Dow Jones at the time, and sold it 10 years later at 1800 and paid taxes on their capital gains. And guess where the Dow Jones was almost exactly 10 years later? 1800. It actually hit that a few months early and then blew right through it in the lead up to the 1987 crash. And then it dipped and then it, it it went a little higher from there, even closer to 2000 and above 2000, but almost eerily 10, you know, nine months and nine years and six months later, it hit 1800 exactly as he said. And sure enough, I mean, with the way inflation was for most of that period, and most of those investors did lose real purchasing power, which is pretty stunning. And the last eerie bit of prescience that he threw out there was that at the time, there was too little capital to fund real growth. And as inflation was sucking uh, the real financing power of companies that they had to fund the real growth, uh, he said, it seems likely that we owe a great deal, great deal more as the years unfold about underinvestment, stagflation, and the failures of the private sector to fulfill needs. And sure enough, we're hearing those needs again, right? There has been a pretty massive underinvestment in certain sectors, not others, but in certain sectors, at least in the US. And I think you're hearing cries from all sorts of political angles about the failure of the private sector to fulfill needs and what the government should and shouldn't do. And I guess that's pretty interesting that that did seem to actually settle down back in the 70s and the 80s. But I think what's really interesting is that he was right. There was a paucity of capital at the time, and then it got fixed. And I think if we could all agree that there was an excess of capital that developed over the ensuing 30 and 40 years. So now we almost have this weird funhouse mirror problem where we have plenty of capital sloshing around out there to fund problems. And in many cases, too many or too much capital to fund things. But we have the opposite problem where you know what's going to drive demand, what's going to drive growth, what's going to offset these demographic factors. And uh, that's a really naughty hard problem to solve. And uh, I certainly don't have any great answers, but uh, you know, it, it would be, again, fascinating to see him revise this essay for today. My guess is that it would probably look similar 
to what, what he was prognosticating here and that there's just so many factors that line up. There's some huge factors that don't. Um, but I think we would likely agree on the fact that lower expectations are, are a key here. And that if you're expecting more than, you know, my, my own personal forecast would be if you're expecting more than a low single digit real return from equities over the next 10 years, you know, and, and maybe something in the mid single digits at the very most six, 7% returns per year in nominal terms from equities. I think, you know, as he said, you're looking at the world through a different lens than I am just because of the fact that unlike in 1977, when we were right in the middle of this, you know, stagnating equity market that had gone sideways at that point already for almost a decade, you know, we're just now recalibrating to this massive sugar high that we had where somehow people thought it was normal that we'd shut down the world in response to COVID and have this incredible generational disruption to the economy. And yet the S&P 500 went up 18% in 2020 and another 28, 29% in 2021. And valuations, you know, in, in most regards got pretty stretched and you saw some pretty, you know, wild uh, aspects happening in the market, like just incredible bouts of speculation and, and other goofy stuff. So I'll stop there and see what you guys uh, have as a reaction to all this. And in particular, wonder if you guys see there's a way out of here, namely a way to improve earnings or something else that that I might be missing. Yeah, I knew you'd appropriately introduce this topic. I think it's really helpful. Good long-term background and bringing it to today. Um, I have a few thoughts on a bunch of things, but you know, to answer your question, I'll get to that first, but uh, later. But let me add a couple things to kind of bring this to where we are now. Um, I thought the line early in the essay, stocks and economic substance are really very similar to bonds, was something that like I needed to reread again today. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, I, I think it's too conventional wisdom, even still, that. You know, stocks protect you from inflation, whereas uh, bonds don't. And, you know, I think there is a case of, you know, the general doesn't necessarily apply to the specific. And that's something I'll get to. But I do think it's interesting to think back to the very essence of stocks. And I've referenced this book before the first tycoon, a story about Vanderbilt. Like back in Vanderbilt's day, stock was something that traded at par value and had a yield that was, you know, at a premium to what bonds would have, but it was effectively a stock. So, you know, we're basically um, 175 years into this experiment of abstracting the value of equity separate and apart from bonds. And things aren't too different today than they were in the late 70s. You know, most of the experimentation and extrapolation happened earlier on. Um, I also thought it was like interesting how much Buffett emphasized ROEs in contrast to a lot of the conversation today being about like what the right cash flow yield is. And his emphasis on, I think, the tapeworm analogy with uh, even bad businesses having to retain earnings because retaining earnings was one of the big abstractions instead of paying out all earnings and having to re raise to fund growth, you know, retaining earnings to drive growth was was a big part of the evolution of equities from the mid 1800s to the mid 1900s and you know that's even bigger today i'd say than it was that 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 is 
continue to change since the late 70s. Companies very much do that uh, almost by definition. It's kind of the the norm. Um, And so I think that was really interesting because then it gets to your question of like what changes are present today uh what 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 could be different like what could get a get us out of this so i also had made a little list of a very brief list of similarities and and differences um i think one of the similarities is we had a period akin to what buffett called heaven on earth with good reinvestment rates and rising multiples uh for, sure. for a decade um, we've also had a lot of corporate tax cuts, so there's no room for that from here. That's, that's not a, some of the juice that we could squeeze and margins have over years widened quite a bit from where they were. So there's less room though. There is a nearer term consideration, which is that I think, you know, one of the, one of the overarching questions that I have on this all is what's pandemic, what's normal, what's, what's COVID impact, what's not. Um, and, you know, I think the longer we get from the pandemic, uh, 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 brute force changes, the harder it is to still call things pandemic. But I think there's some room for margin normalization as things like shipping rates come down. We haven't seen that uh, flow through to margins yet because it happened very recently and companies had secured their shipping rates well in advance. You know, you heard that commentary uh, from Nike and a few others this past couple weeks saying Costco they, was just talking about that today too yeah how they were kind of on the tail end of on the head of the whip and behind the whip on that stuff yeah crazy. so we're not exactly seeing what a normal level of post-covid margins looks like yet i think it's going to take a year to get there because companies contract well in advance uh to kind of hedge their shipping rates and at least have a degree of business certainty so anyway those are those are some of the similarities right I'm, my, my point there being margins have widened a lot so we might get a little recovery one year to the next, but in aggregate over a decade, they've they've moved pretty decisively oh, that, in one direction. Yeah, that's just it, right? I, I think you could just take this argument and freeze it in time at December 31st, 2019, and just pretend we're having this debate two years, two and a half years ago before COVID ever happened, because the same thing would apply if we were having the same inflationary issue. Now, obviously, you can't do that because a lot of the inflationary pressures we're seeing today are due to COVID. But, you know, like with all great moments in history, it's like factors build up on top of themselves. And then some crazy wave comes along and, and tops the dam and the whole thing breaks and the flood is on. Right. Mm. And that seems to be the case here, I think. Yeah, it does feel that way. But, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll get to my differences because I do think there's some notable ones, but they're not as impactful as you'd hope in some ways. But, you know, one of Buffett's fears at the time was that corporate pensions were a hidden source of debt that yeah. would drain cash. We don't have that today, by and large. True. There yeah. are a few exceptions, but that is you know, not the case across the S&P in aggregate. Um, companies did lever up over the last decade, but I'd say in every critical sector, they are better capitalized today than they had been at that time. Um, you have certain sectors like technology that are way overcapitalized even still. Uh, You have banks that are as well-capitalized as they've been in generations, largely by virtue of having just gone through a financial crisis hardly more than a decade ago. Um, And, you know, so so better capitalizations. Uh, Terms on debt are much longer now than they were back then. Um, I've seen it quantified and you know we're we're as termed out on debt as we have been so 
you know, assuming that uh, interest rates don't stay, don't get too high, you know, 10 years out, uh, things are a little better than, uh, there, there, there's time to figure out how much that will impact the values of businesses. Um, one of the big changes, I think the world is far more intangible today. Uh, I'd say way more of the value in the S&P are companies who deploy intangible assets where we don't even know what the true margin is. I think the incentive for a company like Google, Alphabet, right? Or Meta, Facebook, whatever you want to call them. The incentive to appease regulators is to um, show at least some degree of, uh, uh, of resistance on pushing margins further. But I do think the core margins on a lot of these intangible companies are way better than meets the eye. And if push came to shove, they, they could squeeze out some defensive margin. I don't know about incremental margin, but they could at least keep them where they are if they so chose uh, while appeasing regulators. Um, you know, stockholders are a stakeholder that might get a little more uh, uh, impatient about not uh, gunning for some margin improvements. And you're starting to hear rumblings of that. And then one big difference that I think is is um, kind of less good for businesses is that the world had gotten more global in the past two, two decades. Um, so that means one of the consequences of the environment we're in is a rising dollar. And that makes it even more painful on corporate earnings in the US, especially for those whose cost structure is denominated in dollars to then earn something other than dollars and have to translate that back here to the bottom line. Now, you know, I, I pose these without uh, an answer to anything, but I did take a look at Buffett's holdings in the second half of the 70s. And I think what's interesting, you know, Early in this inflationary environment, a friend suggested that I read Sequoia's letters uh, and that the idea isn't that equities are bad in those periods. It's that some equities are really bad and some equities do fine. And I think it's notable that uh, Berkshire and Sequoia had a very large portion of their respective portfolios in overlapping companies and areas. Specifically, those areas were advertising, broadcasting, and newspapers, which all boil down to advertising at the end of the day. And I think a big part of that is typically those industries deploy largely intangible assets, and their revenue sources tend to be uh, tied more to nominal GDP than to real GDP. Now, that doesn't mean in moments when consumers feeling the pinch the revenues uh, won't feel the pinch as well in those times. But it does mean that over longer stretches of prolonged inflation, those companies can turn uh, higher nominal levels of revenue into better ROEs. That was probably the bet, and it worked out quite well. And I see it more with, it, it happened in both, but um, I think you know I, I got a better sense of it from Sequoia, but towards the end of that period, they started buying more consumer product companies. I think Gillette was one of the standouts. Um, and I found that to be interesting. So there was a time when it was like, let's let's start getting into consumer products. Um, so I think those were some of the investment ramifications. Like think about companies whose pricing is tied more to nominal, who are deploying largely intangible assets. And you know, with, with Gillette, it's almost that way where the intangible that they were deploying was a brand combined with distribution. Um, 
so anyway, that's more of how I had been thinking about how to deal with it and how to think about the answer, because I don't think there is one answer. Um, and I don't think there is one way out, but I do think there are some, uh, like distinct opportunities out of this all. Yeah, that's a great point. And one, one thing that's again, a little bit of a digression, but really worth digging into that I think about a lot is what your comment about intangibles there. And, and something I think about all the time as it pertains to this type of analysis and, and namely it's that, you know, we're not capturing a lot of the stuff that really matters by using even even decent proxies or approximations. I mean, it, it gets more meaningful actually as you zoom out. So you use the Dow Jones or the S&P 500, but particularly company by company and, and to a certain extent at the broader level, you know, we just don't capture the true required maintenance spending in these numbers, right? And so, you know, I always think about this. There was a paper written a couple of years ago. I'll see if I can find it, but it was basically about you know just the shortcomings of accounting, and there, there's no easy way to fix it. But you know we just don't capture what you really need to spend on an ongoing basis as a tool of forecasting or true accounting, because it, it's hard enough, right? Like so, you you get these generally accepted accounting principles that say, all right, the the useful life of a fixed asset, it could be office furniture, it could be a locomotive engine or whatever it is, you know, there's very broad ranges, right? And there's all kinds of, uh, you know, examples of the case where, and one of the things they cite is that the theory at the time was, and this was relatively recent, was that companies were still milking huge amounts of value and earnings from fully depreciated assets. And I mean, a good example of this would be, I remember very distinctly asking this question to the then CFO of Delta Airlines about four years ago. And saying, you know, what is your true maintenance level of capital spending? You know, let's forget about how you want to grow and your intracontinental plans and all this kind of stuff. What do you really need to spend in a given year? And, you know, of course, he wouldn't tell me the exact number, but you could tell it wasn't a number he was even comfortable giving a range on. But the one thing that he would keep saying over and over again is that they had a fleet because their maintenance and repair organization was so good. They had a fleet of aircraft that were fully depreciated that were still flying. And you know that that's a very high margin asset when when you have that type of situation. So the one theory is that corporate America's had this huge amount of earnings and value generated by fully depreciated assets that's apparently enough to potentially offset the you know things that need to be replaced more quickly that are not being depreciated appropriately in in true economic terms. But then, as to your point, Elliot, I'm sorry, I'm this is so long winded. But what about intangibles, right? Because you don't expense anything for the maintenance spending on intangibles as a general principle. And so let's take, what's a good example? You know, Google search engine or YouTube or something like that, right? That some of the most valuable intangibles the world has ever seen because so many people just automatically go to google.com to search something or in the various ways that you access the Google search engine, which has created one of the most valuable advertising platforms and intellectual property platforms in the history of the world. And that is, you know, the fact that I just automatically go there and a lot of people automatically go there has to be one of the most valuable and tangible assets of all time. What does Google need to spend to replenish that asset and keep it as powerful next year as it is this year? And nobody knows. Ruth Porat doesn't know. Nobody knows, right? And it's a big number though. And the problem is, is that by the time you find out that you've been spending too little, it's way too late. And to your point, Elliot, about how you need to think about equities like bonds as a, you know, infinite duration perpetual is that when something bad happens and you have 
20 years of duration or something implied in the price, you have a massive, massive problem. Does that does that all make sense? I know that was a winding, long diatribe, but... No, 100%. And it's something I've thought about a lot with Google. And I think it's, <clears throat> you know, they're absolutely investing aggressively in Google search. But I do think part of the other forays is an artificial way to keep margins down, if you will. You know, a lot of Facebook's margin is being eroded by investments in Meta, and they might say it's, you know, an investment in the future and think it's critical, but the magnitude of it is pretty large. It's something that could be cut if the environment is hostile sure. enough where they need to defend margin. Um, and I know there's that's a lot of experimenting. That's growth, right? What's yeah, that? That's, that's, it's growth. Like, that's what they're looking at for the future. Like, you know, and, and that could be that they're saying we're spending the appropriate amount on core Facebook, right? The website and the app. And we're spending enough on Instagram. And so we have excess capital and we're going to invest into this other area because whatever the number is, whether it's three years from now or 30 years from now, we know that we will have, quote, fully depreciated the intangible asset that is Facebook. And if we haven't pre-invested in the growth of the metaverse, then we're going to be left holding an empty bag. Right? Absolutely. It's an interesting experiment. Um, you know, I've always appreciated companies who will tell you how much maintenance uh, capex they're spending versus uh, growth, even if it is not necessarily an entirely true number. Um, but you rightfully will never know that with something like Google or with something else. No, uh, no, you can't. Yeah, it's not possible. It's just fascinating to think about, it. and it's it's scary when you encounter CEOs and CFOs who just look like a deer in headlights and haven't even contemplated it. And yet, you know, these are the same CFOs that are signing a Starbucks declaration and putting out, you know, depreciable life asset, depreciable life estimates on their assets of five to 40 years or whatever. And it's like, all right, well, you could drive a truck through that range. So, you know, what's the range for this? And they just, you know, they don't have any clue, but it's the best case for not amortizing (laughs) R&D. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's true. Um, yeah. Although I do think investors are largely smart enough to look past about past that and think about it independently. Well, I think they probably are. I think that's fair, and I think in in broad terms, the collective hive mind equity market will get these problems more right than wrong. But it's pretty easy to be disastrously wrong in an individual case, right? If you, you know, if the technology changes or the business itself in one way or another changes. Like it's pretty easy to step right off a cliff and look down, right? Yep. I think Meta Meta is going through that at the at this very moment. Yeah, that's a good example of it where that's definitely one of the many issues at play, that's for sure. And, you know, I still think to take it a, a step back in terms of inflation and where we are right now, like one of the bigger problems is that we have not had much uh, investment in our productive capacity in this country in the last 20 years, really. And um, we have not had improvement in total factor productivity. That's That had stagnated from like 2000 to 2016, roughly. It had finally started uh, improving ever so modestly then. And, you know, we're kind of paying the price for that now amidst a combination of very large stimulus that got us back to trend growth in demand from pre-GFC levels and supply bottlenecks. And you know, you had asked before about ways out and I never really got to it. But I do think 
um, big investments in productivity improvement are the way out from here. Like that's literally the number one thing that we could do from here. Need some sort of supply side incentives uh, to get there and do it. The technology's there. We have had an inability and an unwillingness to deploy it for various reasons. Um, yeah. And I know from one of the companies I talked to, they'd said one of the biggest impediments in getting faster adoption of automation had been union resistance at some of the really large industries uh, who are deploying it. It was negotiated into um, the labor agreements uh, between companies and, and employee base to the exact extent of automation they would allow. And so that was largely coming out of an environment where too much unemployment was the problem. If we are in a period where too little unemployment is the problem, you have the political cover to get that done. Um, and in fact, I think workers in those industries would appreciate it to the degree that they're overworked and it kind of changes the nature of some of their jobs for the better. Uh, so that's the way out. I totally agree. It's a great way out. It's it's not only the way out, it's, uh, it's always a good prescription for investing in the future and and laying the groundwork for future prosper you know prosperity amongst all enterprises and citizens the problem with it of course is that it's near term pain for long term gain and that's you know never i mean <laughs> one of the things in here that's that's kind of funny is uh buffett writes most of those in political office quite understandably are firmly against inflation and firmly in favor of policies that produce it and the same's kind of true of like productivity investments amongst uh you know certain companies like you said whether it's like a labor issue where you're displacing a certain labor force in favor of a clearly better alternative where there's just a very painful readjustment period where people get laid off and their jobs get automated and they have to find a new way forward that's been a huge part of the political discontent in my opinion in the last 10 20 30 years and i think you're going to see it again now like if if i'm correct and we're going to go into a period of reshoring and shorter, thicker supply lines as opposed to these tiny, little, fragile, super thin supply lines that touch five continents on their way to producing, you know, this tiny little good, you know, things like the, the most forested nation on earth, Canada, importing their toothpicks from China, you know, that cost less than a fraction of a penny each, like crazy stuff like that. If that's all going to get wound on a bigger on a bigger scale, it's going to be expensive and it's going to hurt margins. And even if it's good for the long term, it's not going to be real good for people that are focusing understandably on the here and now. And so, you know, I, I look at those five factors of increasing earnings and if anything, see them as all working against us. And to your point about the triple dip, you know, I think that's a fascinating way of looking at it. I think we just had something very similar to that where we had high returns on capital that were way, way in excess of anything available, you know, with an interest rate component to it. And the reinvestment rate was super attractive. And then you had this feedback loop and this reflexivity and this speculative mania that kicked off. And now all of that's going into reverse as well at the same time that we're kind of cresting this demographic wave. Because again, I mean, if you ask me the biggest single difference between this period and 1977, when Buffett wrote this essay, you know, you pointed out correctly that like pensions aren't as much of a thing at, at corporate America as they could have been, or maybe were back then. Corporate balance sheets are in decent shape. We do have excess capital today, but what we really don't have anywhere in the world is excess human capacity, human labor, human inputs, human demand, because so much of the world is about to see 
a decline in working age populations. And at the same time, we do have a massive pension crisis at the state, federal, and local levels. So, uh, and that and that applies to you know other sovereign nations too. That's not just a U.S. problem. I mean, if you don't think Russia has a retiree crisis, or China, or Japan, or most of Europe, I mean, it's you're just looking at a different reality than I am. So, I I don't know how we uh, offset those types of things. And again, I guess the the best way I can tile this up is: look, I'm not overly bearish. You know, lower prices are a good thing. I welcome the declines we've seen in a lot of assets this year because I think it was needed and long overdue and, and healthy in a lot of ways. But you know, again, like let's say you're going to have uh, 14 or 15 percent return on on your equity capital, and because of the you know relatively elevated purchase price and taxes and frictional costs, that's kind of brought down to maybe seven percent. And what if inflation averages only I say only in air quotes five percent? So that you know you have a two percent compounded annual gain for the next five or ten years. I mean, again, I think there's a very realistic scenario here where, just like Buffett said back then, that we could look forward ten years from now, and you know the the absolute value of the equity market may well have doubled. So let's say seven percent, but it's it's only gone up, you know, maybe two percent in real terms or something like that, right? I think the real purchasing power is is a very open question. Yeah, I'll jump in there with with a few thoughts. I mean, just on that last point, Phil, um, you know, talking about real versus nominal and, um, you know, that in in nominal terms, I guess in that example, we would have a kind of a mid to high single digit uh, return, which um, would be very different from a bonds likely over that period, uh, if if interest rates are going up over the holding period. Um, and I think, you know, so one can say that equities are bond-like in some way, but I think the crucial difference is that with equities, you do have a kind of an inflation-adjusted coupon, uh, generally speaking. And obviously, it's going to vary widely uh, by company and industry and over what time frame you look at this. Um, but clearly, you know, if you just take um, the, the sales or the revenue of all S&P 500 companies, it should increase on average roughly in line with inflation. You know, that's kind of what inflation is, is um, prices going up and that is reflected in the top line of companies. And then if you have um, you know, kind of steady margins um, that does come down to the bottom line, again, in nominal terms. And I think, you know, the reason why you had that decade uh, in the 70s of no equity returns is really because the discount rate over that period went up a lot, meaning the PE multiple went down a lot. And it would be interesting to see kind of what it was at the beginning of that period and, and at the end. But I think the you know that doesn't mean that equities do not protect against inflation. Um, you know, you could say over that period um, they didn't do a great job, but you really got to look at the full interest rate cycle, meaning um, you know, you pick an interest rate as a starting point, and then once the interest rate gets back down to that same level, what's the return on equities? And that can take, you know, a couple decades or longer. So 
this is a really long-term view, but um, I think it's it's a, it's kind of a point that gets overlooked. You know, why did we have the kind of bull market um, we did starting in '82? Um, well, it is because interest rates came down, so there was major P multiple expansion. But you also got to consider that um, earnings in nominal terms were at a much higher level because of inflation um, as a starting point in 82. And they continued to go up, obviously. But so, you know, it's a little bit like a coiled spring where um, because PE multiples come down so much as interest rates go up, you still have this permanently higher level of earnings in nominal terms thanks to inflation. And then when interest rates start the down cycle again, you can see incredible returns. Um, So I think another question that I think is is kind of a key question here going forward is what's going to happen to profit margins? Because we have been basically at or near historical highs and that is a mean reverting series, um, even without inflation. And I think with inflation, even more so, and it's going to really vary by sector and type of company. Um, so you're going to see huge, huge differences in terms of you know how inflation actually impacts the bottom line of, of different companies. Um, so I guess my question to you guys would be, what um, what are the implications from an investment standpoint? Are there some sectors or types of companies that you guys are avoiding or um, preferring if we are entering um, you know a kind of environment like we had in the seventies? Yeah, I've I've certainly been thinking about it this year. I don't know that I have any brilliant insights or firm advice, but I think the one thing I've sh- I've been shaking out on is that again. Like just because something worked this year and is covering a lot of people, there's a handful of funds and firms that are just killing it this year because they were, you know, maybe long energy, long commodities and short overvalued tech stuff. And that's like the perfect recipe for this year, of course. But I think, you know, the historical record and cert over long, long periods of time, even most individual years, and certainly in inflationary environments would show that, you know, look, it's a delicate balance between what we might be facing right now in terms of some structural shortages in certain commodities and some favorable backdrops for that kind of stuff relative to a very, very difficult business model in terms of capital intensity and a lack of real pricing power in an inflationary environment. So, and look, I don't do it really anything in energy and commodities kind of, uh, not by definition. I wouldn't rule it out necessarily. I just think it's always tough. And I always feel like I'm at somewhat of an analytical or information information disadvantage in a lot of them. So um, it's not a huge area of focus, but that would make me real nervous. I think, you know, it's boring to say, but it's kind of evergreen advice is that, you know, if you can find well-run efficient operations that have real pricing power, that is the best place to hide from inflation. And to your point, John, I mean, you know, it's in the essay many, many times, right? I mean, it's very helpful to think about stocks and bonds as both having a coupon, but there are some very, very important, obvious structural differences that until you stop and think about them, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's easy to overlook them and go off the deep end. And, And yeah, look, every bond, even 
no matter how long dated it is, eventually comes up due and you know, you get to control some of the reinvestment along the way. The equities do not have a stated coupon, do not have a stated maturity. And in general, you're only getting to control whatever the dividend you receive is. And that's generally less as a percentage of the coupon than it would be in anything, you know, in the fixed income world. So uh, it's it's tough. I, I don't have any ironclad advice, unfortunately. I'll throw out one sector that I've been loving and it's... Um one that I think has defensive traits, but has not been acting as such, uh, maybe until very recently, but for the last year. And it's the life sciences, biotech tools and instruments and related areas. Um, that whole like general sector had a mini bubble in the mid 2010s and had like, I'd say a secondary wave of enthusiasm with COVID and is in the worst bear market that it's ever experienced. And valuations are as low as they've ever been for a lot of kinds of companies. And there are a lot of companies trading at levels where the market's effectively saying, you know, liquidate and give back money or sell yourself. And that's starting to happen, though it takes a while for that reset to manifest. But there are a lot of companies in these areas um, that, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of us investors who have read about the circle of competence might say like, oh, I don't know if I could go into that space because it's highly technical. It's dominated by specialists, but there are many business models that we know really well. The razor blade business model is extremely common in that area. And you could get a sense of, you know, instrument placements, how long they last and what sort of pull through you get of whatever consumable goes with it and find some really interesting companies with really interesting margin profiles that have um, reasons why they'd they, their assets would earn uh, profits for pretty long duration of time. Um, and I think, you know, Phil had mentioned demographics before. I think demographics support uh, consistent investment in these areas. Um, so it's, it's, one, one of the things I've spent most time on this year, um, have done a lot of learning before I'd done any acting. And um, I found it to be uh, a good area to be hunting nowadays. Um, now, I understand why a lot of people would stay away from it in general. I've spoken to some other uh, generalist peers I really trust. And you know people don't necessarily love the idea of looking in those spaces. But, you know, I think that in some ways adds to the allure because the specialists are so beaten down, they're not getting incremental flows and there's no true crossover generalist bid at the moment. Um, but I, I'd say, you know, give it a look if you're, if you're so inclined. Um, and I do think, you know, as much as technology stocks are not the rage today, there are certain kinds of technology stocks that are less consumer sensitive than others that are dealing entirely with intangible assets, where if you do fear the cost of capital has gotten very high, it almost might be beneficial because for many of these companies, the, the biggest risk was that it was super easy to raise money and come at them. And now with tighter money, I think a lot of the competitive landscape for some of these companies has been decimated. And so if you're cash flowing, like like nicely so, not talking about like flirting with break even, but if you're nicely cash flowing, 
you're actually in a much stronger position today than you were a few years ago. And the valuation is way better. So those are those are two I'd throw out. Yeah, that's a good point about competition. I it's something I'd probably overlooked is that it was relatively easier to just start any sort of stupid ass company and throw a gazillion dollars at growth like we work and just, you know, try to quote unquote disrupt something because you're you know, everyone was telling you and you were you had demonstrable evidence that your cost of capital was zero. <laughs> so, you know, there's an infinite return in that case. And uh, that, that has definitely changed. What I find fascinating is that the cost of capital hasn't become high in any sense of the word for most of these companies. It was going from zero or some asinine number like 1% up, I don't know, what, a few hundred basis points maybe in most cases. Now, look, I know there are companies that can't get funded at all anymore and the, the cost of capital for them truly is high. And there are some broken companies that are now sporting some truly you know, high cost of capital. And by that, I mean you know, 15% or something or, or, or north of that, which again, just kind of reflects the fact that they're broken business models. So I think what you said, Elliot, is crucial. It's like if you're actually cash flow positive, if you are actually doing something of value that the economy finds merit in and you're a viable enterprise, then yeah, look, you shouldn't be worried. You shouldn't be panicked. This is you know a mixed blessing, but it doesn't have to be all bad. It could be good in some ways. And if you're one of these broken dreamers that you know is never going to get anywhere and couldn't make money five or six years ago, certainly couldn't make money a couple of years ago and is, aren't making money today, then yeah, you have a huge problem. And I'd add to that a second dimension, which is if you're one of those companies that's really you know cash generative, you still had to engage in the racket ratchet of employee comp going up and up and up and people uh, wanting to increase the equity they'd get by going to startups and getting paid out on bonuses and then quickly getting an IPO and then you know retiring at a very young age. Um, that game is over. <laughs> so you could retain your employees for a lot less than you otherwise would have before. And you could um, you know, hire people for less than you otherwise would have. And that's supportive of margin if you could keep pushing revenues uh, at the same time. Um, so I think the dynamics have fundamentally changed for cash flowing tech companies. Yeah, fair enough. I agree. Great. Great. Very interesting. Um, thank you so much, guys, for the discussion. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. As you may know, we are newly on a bi-weekly schedule. So we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Take care. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.